people are betting on you know certain things happening that you know just haven't matured yet. Welcome to Tech Talks, the podcast brought to you by Nash Squared and hosted by myself, David Savage, that's been bringing you the latest thinking from technology leaders for over eight years. Joining me today, Amber and Akish, two-thirds of the uh, podcast in the in the top five most shared podcasts globally. <laughs> I shouldn't really laugh at that, should I? I, I almost expected my DMs to pop off on the weekend. Like I kept on refreshing them, like maybe... Maybe people want me on their podcast, you know, Good Morning Britain, you know, <laughs> This Morning, you know, Jonathan Ross Show, Graham Norton. It's not happened? Nah, nah, nothing, mate. Really. So I, I sent, right, I, I've got to get this right. I, I sent a WhatsApp to one of my best friends from university um, saying, I can't believe it. Like, this show is in the top 10% globally of the most followed I was I was like quite impressed uh, with 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 us, and Claire, my friend, replied. I mean, that could be the top ten percent of ten million podcasts, which means that there still could be nine hundred ninety nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine more popular than yours. But I tend to think you're awesome, and that's why. It's like thanks, thanks, yeah, thanks for that. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's like it's like you know when people go, I'm in the top one percent earners on OnlyFans. And it's just like, it's like, well, how many, how many other people are there? Like, what are you measuring up that one percent against? Like, this yeah. is of course because Spotify Wrapped was last week. Spotify Wrapped for podcasters is a thing. Um, on Friday, I interviewed the director of product at Spotify, who's in charge of analytics. So next week's show is going to be all about analytics and specifically asking him questions around our analytics. Things like, why was our most listened location last week? Have a quick guess. It wasn't London. Where do you think it was? Belgium. Okay. Akish? Uh, Lisbon. Right. No. No. Our, our most listened location last week was Ibiza Old Town. No way. Yeah, genuinely. According, according to the analytics from our host platform. Mate, it's, this is what Wayne Lineker does on, uh, you know, an off-season. <laughs> just just walk around and listen to Tech Talks, mate. There's no, there's no, there's no ocean beach this week, so there's uh, Tech Talks by Dave. It's just it's just Wayne in the middle of the pool yeah. in O Beach yeah. with us on loudspeaker. 100%, mate. He's probably, he's that probably sounds like the, a party right there, doesn't it's it? Probably, it's probably got the Verve Clico champagne, you know, being popped off every time <laughs> our jingle comes on. <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear, no, no. So, so thank you for listening, everyone who is listening, and thank you for sharing. Top five percent most shared. So, if you're sharing it, then thanks. That's that's lovely. Um, I was also going to say, I did a very vain thing last night. But have you seen the trend that is sweeping through the internet of AI generated portraits? Oh, Dave, I saw this on your Instagram. <laughs> wow. I mean, it looks it. like it looks great. Like it looks so much like you, but it's just. Um, I thought your jawline looked amazing in one of them. I mean, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't normally. Mate, you're, you're lucky you're married to Haley, mate. Otherwise, you know, could be could be trouble with that. To be fair, are you going to do one? Well, hopefully, if they give me a jawline, I could do with one. To be fair, but, um... <laughs> should you be giving eight photos of yourself to a company that you've not really heard a huge amount of just to get some rather random photos back? I don't know, but there there are a lot of these appearing on Instagram. Oh, I'm going to give that a go. Link in the show notes. Let's play the interview. It's with Eric Lee. He's the co-founder of LinkedIn. He's the co-founder of Karma Check and current CEO. We'll be back in a few minutes. 
So today I'm joined by Eric Lee, co-founder and CEO of Karma Check, also the co-founder and founding CTO of LinkedIn in a previous life. So thank you very much for giving up some time and joining us. I understand that you're in Austin today. Yes, uh, David, it's uh, great to join you. And I am in uh, Austin, which is getting chillier as we speak. Uh, and look, at the time of recording, it's the 28th of November. So you've just come back from the, the Thanksgiving weekend. Did you have a, a nice longer time uh, to, to enjoy a bit of festivities? I, I did. It's been a pretty intense year on the work front. And so being able to take a few days off uh, during Thanksgiving was definitely welcome. So I enjoyed it very much. Here's a very broad question before we get into it. You know, you, you think about the kind of the stereotypes of, a, of an entrepreneur and a, and a tech founder and sleeping under the desks and working all hours of the day. How important is it to actually have that downtime? Well, I'd say it's very important. Um, I, I used to be one of those guys who worked you know, around the clock uh, and, uh, you know, burned the candle at both ends. And, you know, you, you realize that uh, once you get older, it's maybe not... The best idea to do that, if only because, you know, as a as a leader, you know, you're often thrust into being a leader as an entrepreneur. It's really important to kind of have that um, perspective and to make wise decisions, right? And if you're tired and you know worn out and not able to think clearly, uh, you're actually doing uh, everyone, you know, your team, the investors, the company, a disservice by not making the best decisions. So, I've come to self-impose some rest time for myself uh, just so that I can become hopefully a better leader. Definitely an interesting reflection perhaps for people who are at the beginning of that journey. Look, before anything else, uh, obviously people will be familiar with LinkedIn, but KarmaCheck perhaps not. So what's what's your current uh, company? What does KarmaCheck do? Well, KarmaCheck is really focused in on the space that uh, you know doesn't get talked about a lot, but we're incredibly passionate about it. And it's in the area of background checks. Um, and uh, you might ask, well, what's that? And, you know, why, why are we working on it? Um, so, uh, you know, background checks are one of these things that are just incredibly common um, in the States, uh, in the U.S. Uh, usually when someone gets a job before they actually get paid and, you know, get signed the paperwork, uh, they will go through a background check. And so background check verified someone's uh, credentials, be it their education history or their employment history. Uh, there are some you know, criminal databases that are checked also. And in some esoteric fields, there are things like you know, drug tests and uh, physicals that people have to do as well. So it encompasses a wide variety of uh, things. Um, and uh, you know, we've been interested in this uh, problem because uh, of uh, an experience I had a few years ago at LinkedIn where uh, I was uh, thinking about what LinkedIn had managed to do successfully and if there were any stones that were left unturned. And one of the things that I realized about platforms like that is that uh, there needs to be a verification layer on top of that information that exists on LinkedIn. You know, People put in the information themselves. We're all using that information more and more to make rather important decisions, whether it's uh, to, you know, consider someone for a job or to consider someone to get into a business partnership of some sort. And so by people putting the information in themselves, there is the potential that people can exaggerate a little bit or maybe falsify information a little bit. And that leads to a breakdown of trust. Uh, and so we became very interested in this idea of how do you, you know, do verifications and screenings 
a whole lot faster than it was done before. So you, you talk there about trust and you obviously talk about speed. How is technology helping you achieve those two goals? Well, technology is great for that, isn't it? Um, you know, the, when, when you need uh, something fast, when you need something to scale, uh, that's what uh, technology, you know, is for. And so when we arrived onto the scene, you know, I myself not knowing very much about this background screening space, uh, I had to learn a lot about it. But one of the things that I did learn is that uh, even though uh, companies uh, use these sorts of methods to verify this information, uh, it's been a few decades since the methods uh, in this space have been innovated upon. And so we thought, well, what if we took the latest tech and the latest ideas around tech, you know, things like, um, you know, using, you know, data, more more data than uh, there was available to this process before, uh, using things like uh, the blockchain um, and uh, making a version that uh, makes it go faster for uh, both employers and actually for the candidates themselves. Um, and the reason why that's important is that, you know, businesses are moving faster and faster. And especially for those businesses that rely a lot on talent, uh, speed is uh, certainly very important. So if they can hire someone faster, uh, they're going to be more productive as a company faster. They're going to be more competitive against their competitors who are looking for the same talent uh, better. Um, and so those are all advantages that we hope will be achieved through the technology that we're bringing to the market. You allude to the fact that that you're utilizing blockchain. Blockchain's been one of those terms that's been thrown around a lot over the last few years. But I, I sense that with Web3 now being talked about, there feels like there's this maturing now of those technologies and their user cases. Um, what is it about blockchain in this particular example that allows you to achieve those goals that you set out, that allows companies to have the confidence that the information that I put into LinkedIn is accurate or that the information that they're being presented with on an individual is correct? Well, um, blockchain is a very interesting technology in itself. Uh, and when we you know, started KarmaCheck, we started looking at those ideas um, and there was a, certainly a, a rise in the interest around that technology. And I think it's important to separate you know, the difference between the, uh, the use of crypto, uh, which you know, has been reported in the press quite a bit, with the underlying technology, which is, you know, blockchain. And there's a lot of really amazing things that you can do with the underlying technology beyond representing, uh, you know, tokens and items of value. Um, and so what we want to do, you know, with this information is to somehow uh, make that information available and, and put it back into the hands of the individual users. And the kind of decentralized nature of blockchain actually allows us to, to do that. Um, so there, there's a lot of deep ideas in the blockchain uh, that are frankly uh, disruptive to current business models. Uh, but uh, there's a lot of wonderful ideas that will, I think, you know, push us all who use technology. I mean, that's everybody these days uh, into some new ways of using technology that I think are going to be much more trustworthy, uh, much more uh, dependable, and uh, you know, make uh, honestly the use of technology that much better. Out of interest, are there, are there any other technology solutions that you could have used other than blockchain? I, I was at a 
symposium a few years ago at Cambridge University where they were kind of talking about, oh, is this the correct user case for blockchain? I don't know whether that really matters, but it, why, why do you think this is the best um, way forward? I mean, you know, as opposed to some other technology that allows you to achieve what you're trying to, to yeah. do here. So the evolution of blockchain technology is still, you know, evolving and still in its infancy, you know, really. Um, but there's a couple ideas in blockchain that maybe not as well known that I think are really disruptive. One, one is this idea of uh, immutability, which is to say that once you record something onto a blockchain, uh, you can't change it. And that works great for things like, you know, credentials and verifying that, you know, someone's background uh, is what it is. Um, there's another aspect of blockchain uh, which is really its decentralized nature, right? It's sort of like the internet in that regard where uh, the people who started the internet, you know, gave it, you know, to the world and we're all benefiting from it. You know, there's really no one who owns it. Yes, there are big companies that, you know, do major things with the internet, but really the underlying technology belongs to all of us. And that's also, you know, one of the properties of uh, blockchain that, allows um, you know the individual user to control their own information as opposed to let's say a corporation that you know might lock up that information and use it only in certain ways uh, such as you know for for example in advertising uh, or not you know let the user uh, use that information when they want to um, so there's some really interesting properties of that technology that uh, frankly, I think are yeah, a better model for how we want to operate in the years and the decades to come than maybe the current uh, internet and the current way of doing things. It's interesting there that you kind of look to the future and, and how we might want to use the internet in years to come. I mean, looking at the current labor market, kind of what do you see primarily as the, as the challenges or opportunities as you look ahead for, for KarmaCheck? Well, 2022 has been a really interesting year. Uh, for the labor market and for talent, right? Uh, you know, when the pandemic happened, you had, you know, massive layoffs uh, for, of, of people, uh, people, lots of people leaving the workforce and, uh, you know, needing to find a job. Uh, but then as things recovered, uh, people started coming back, but uh, some people had retired, you know, permanently. And what happened was that the companies, the employers still needed the talent uh, but there was uh, more of a, a lack around that talent. And so we're now in the situation where I think across all different industries, there, there really are more jobs than uh, there are candidates who can fill those jobs. And so you have this kind of period where, you know, there's competitiveness around the, you know, talent pool. And you also uh, have uh, companies, you know, wanting to, become more and more uh, successful still to recover to some extent from their pandemic uh, times. And so uh, what that means is that the, the talent, the needs for talent to be matched to opportunities um, actually becomes that much uh, greater from, from both sides. People who are looking for jobs as well as companies who want to employ them. And so we're entering this period where uh, that matching becomes ever more important and so the speed at which that can happen uh, really becomes rather important. If you don't mind me just switching tack slightly and, and asking you a little bit about kind of the entrepreneurial 
spirit that obviously is at uh, at the heart of your being. I mean, you, you've you've in, you've been inspired to launch Karma Check. You were there at the start for LinkedIn. Um, you obviously have seen opportunities or seen challenges that the market has and found solutions to try and solve some of those. But how do you sort between an idea that seems good and an idea that genuinely has the opportunity to challenge and disrupt and, and make a difference? Well, that's the key, isn't it? <laughs> I have to say throughout my career, I've learned uh, actually how to become uh, you know, a better and better you know, entrepreneur and to um, sort of make the next endeavor you know, somehow better than the previous one. And I think you learn how to, you know, pay attention to, you know, signals um, that tell you whether you're on the path to succeeding or not. And I think a lot of times, uh, you know, when we're all beginning to be entrepreneurs, we're enamored with an idea. You know, it's hard enough to find an idea that, you know, works well. Um, but uh, I think it's really important. I, I've learned uh, through my time that, to look at an idea from, you know, different perspectives uh, and to be, you know, critical of uh, the idea yourself uh, that you've come up with is really important. So, for example, um, you know, I think a lot of entrepreneurs are caught up in, you know, their, their fancy ideas that uh, look great on paper, but um, they've, they've really got to look at, you know, the market, uh, the addressable market. Is there um, a pain point that... Uh, can be solved? Uh, is the market large enough uh, to be solved? Um, is the solution to the problem actually viable? Like, can you actually build a product that solves that problem? Uh, some problems are very worth solving, but the solution is incredibly hard. So you have to find a match between the problem and the solution to be successful as an entrepreneur. So I think some of those are some of the more recent lessons that I've learned. Have you had to walk away from many solutions that you, you really felt passionately about? Oh, of course. I mean, I think all the time, you know, there's, there's, um, you know, a famous saying by, you know, Steve Jobs, who, you know, when he was uh, alive in an Apple, he said, you know, we, we say no to a lot of things that we could do. Um, and I think that's a really insightful statement in that, you know, someone who, you know, has a lot of ideas, has a lot of entrepreneurial ideas. Uh, it's important to be kind of a critic to those ideas and to filter ones uh, out that don't uh, really, you know, make uh, as much sense uh, and come down to, you know, the ones that are actually, you know, workable. So there, there's sort of this economy of ideas that, uh, you know, you engage within yourself to figure out what ideas you should work on and what ideas uh, you should probably save for a later time. Don't throw them away, but uh, there, there's also an important timing uh, factor to these ideas as well. So you, you as we've uh, said, you were there at the beginning of LinkedIn and you've been able to reflect on the initial stages of KarmaCheck, the initial st stages of LinkedIn and other companies, and your style has changed in terms of your leadership style. But what, what has remained constant? What are the elements of that successful uh, list of ingredients that run throughout those experiences that you think have helped make those particular opportunities a success? Well, great question, David. Um, so there's a couple of things that I'll say. You know, one is that... Uh, 
you know, it is really important to be smart, you know, to smartly execute, you know, through uh, an idea that you may have, whether you're, it's your own idea or you're working on it with some other team members. It's really important to figure out ways to, you know, smartly execute. Um, so I think that's one. Um, but on the balance, what I've found time and time again, whether it's through, you know, LinkedIn or my current endeavor, is that uh, there really is no substitute for hard work. Um, so those two, you know, being smart, uh, working hard, they might seem to be in conflict with one another because sometimes, you know, working smart means you maybe figure out ways to skip some steps and, you know, get to the finish line uh, faster. Uh, but uh, I think all of the entrepreneurs who I've admired, who I've, you know, learned from, uh, those two elements have always been there. So you actually kind of need both to be able to figure out a smart way to solve problems uh, and to work hard in the process. The last question I wanted to ask you um, in preparation for this interview, obviously we, we've had a, your PR team talk to us and, and kind of work out what, where we might take this interview. And one of the questions that they left us with, with was, what's been the biggest failure in the last year and why do you think that's happened? I'm, I'm going to... Change that slightly and say, why do you think there have been challenges within the cryptocurrency market? Why do you think we've seen exchanges collapse? And what's what's next for the crypto and token market? Well, there's certainly been a lot of news about crypto recently and the failure of, you know, too big to fail exchanges uh, in a very short amount of time. It's really surprised everyone. Um, and I would dare say the forensics around, you know, what led to these failures is still being investigated. But, um, you know, I think one of the main things is that um, this uh, technology is still very much built uh, on top of some very early things. Um, and the kind of, you know, value that uh, these currencies, uh, these digital assets are meant to represent um, not quite there yet. And, and so you have kind of a scheme by which, you know, uh, people are uh, betting on, you know, certain things happening that, you know, just haven't matured yet. And so it's almost like a house of cards, you know, yet again, uh, despite, I think, some very good attention, uh, intentions by people in the space to, you know, actually build real value into this technology. So I think we might go through, you know, some waves of this where, you know, there's, there's building there's, um, you know, some failures, but, you know, ultimately it's sort of tending in the right direction, albeit, you know, I think slower than, you know, those of us technologists would, would like to, you know, believe because we see the promise of this kind of technology. So we'll have to be patient. I, I did read one quick thing online, a, a piece by a, an associate professor in finance, um, so, you know, asking where do we go from here, stating several crypto exchanges are now actively verifying the proof of funds, I suppose, as, uh, as co-founder of Karma Check, That must be music to your ears. Well, we're definitely in the business of verifying a lot of things, uh, aren't we? So we, we believe it's important and uh, it does relate to this whole fundamental ideas that we're trying to pursue around trust. Uh, so can you trust your uh, institution? Can you trust your, your customer? Um, you know, I think that is uh, sort of a, a problem that we feel very passionate about uh, kind of for all time. So we're working on a small snippet of it, but, but hopefully, you know, that's going to, you know, lead us uh, to a place where there can be 
kind of more trust um, around these uh, kinds of entities and institutions and people, uh, you know, by which we, you know, either make money or gain some kind of job opportunity. So, yeah. Well, look, it's been a pleasure to speak to you. It's, it's fascinating to hear what you're up to uh, and really very valuable to gain some insight from your time at, at LinkedIn and those early stages of the entrepreneurial journey. I'm sure plenty of people listening will be latching onto that. So uh, enjoy your Monday. I hope that the, the rough ride back into work following a long weekend isn't, isn't too bumpy. Thank you, David. My pleasure. So folks, I mean, this has got to be right up your street. Not only the co-founder of LinkedIn, our most used platform, but now Karma Check making sure that people really are who they say they are yeah it's gonna make our lives a lot easier the line around market conditions mean that speed of matching matters more than ever yeah i i think so um i i I also think from a from a recruitment perspective if, if i put my kind of um you know recruitment hat on um the the speed at which you get through to people and, and, you know, clients' expectations and having the capability to kind of reach out to them straight away, but then also making sure that they are legitimate and they are who they say they are. I think that's key, man. Like, I think that's, that's, that's kind of ideal. Um, and it just means that we can do a better job for the candidate. And I think the candidate experience side of it probably becomes better. Um, if we're obviously, you know, kind of fat, finding and checking that you know everything kind of matches up and everything's legit sort of thing well it's interesting isn't it because I, I remember kind of going through this period with linkedin where linkedin was initially not not trusted and then linkedin after a little while got used to verify cv oh well if it's on their cv if it's also on linkedin you kind of believe it because they've got to be connected to people from that business but there's still an extent that people could put anything on their linkedin people could put anything on a cv mm. and you're taking it at face value and you still need to get references and whatever else it, it makes it easier when there's recommendations and connections but it's it's still not not gospel that what's on there is is accurate mm. Yeah, and I think obviously from like our side of things, like recruiters are always given sometimes a bit of a bad name around sort of like transparency and things like that. So like you say, but it works both ways, doesn't it? Obviously, how we know that there's, we can trust everything that's on the profiles. This obviously is massively going to help. Um, but yeah, like you say, you can put anything on there really, can't you, to be honest? And I guess that you don't really have like a reason to question it because if it's there, most of the time you just take it as, okay, well, clearly they've done it. So who am I to say sort of otherwise? Um, especially with the te- technical stuff, like we are not techie people ourselves. Obviously, we know a lot of like the jargon and the terminology, but I mean, we don't know like the absolute crux of, you know, how to run like an SQL query, for example. Do you know what I mean, like we don't do it day to day ourselves. So it's like we can say these things, but then obviously or ask questions about it. But actually, like you say, if it's there, you, you do just take it as, well, they must have done it before then. Having like a platform that has, you know, a checker, or you know someone to do the due diligence it also makes sure that uh, away from the recruitment side i think it just makes sure that it the people aren't using you know false identities there's not kind of other you know unsolicited kind of things going on linkedin and you know kind of like fake profiles and you know people sort of just you know not using it for the social networking or the the business networking side it's more you know, people could be using it to spy on others or, you know, kind of part, I don't know, like uh, looking to kind of, you know, bully, you know, it comes to that whole kind of cyber crime side, right? Like um, trying to blackmail people or whatnot. So 
I think from that side, it just kind of helped make sure that everyone's kind of safer and protected. Um, and yeah, like I, I remember when, I mean, I was in LinkedIn, like when I first joined recruitment, LinkedIn was just a thing of just browsing and you couldn't really message people. I think you had like maybe 10 messages a week that you could give out and stuff compared to what we have now, which are in the thousands. We can message anyone and everyone. And we can also message people in different countries and, and, and whatnot. And I think the the fact that the the user or the usability of LinkedIn has gone so far and it's so broad i think having someone like this probably helps just to make sure that people and you know kind of stories on linkedin are legit um mm. which is a good thing and that legitimacy thing it must be so tempting for an organization to want to own that because it's such a big conundrum and yet here we have someone who is espousing the strength of blockchain and the fact that that decentralization is a really important aspect of it yeah, I think so. And, and and I think the whole kind of having a product, right, that, that will monitor, that will make sure, you know, people are who they say they are, work where they say that sort of thing. It it just kind of helps. But also, I wonder what LinkedIn think of it. Um, I mean, I, 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 I don't know. But like, you know, I'm not sure what their opinions would be on these things. I think it, it, one part of it, you probably think, yeah, it helps. But I mean, I don't know how many fake profiles there are on LinkedIn. Um, I can't say I've really counted any, but I just wonder kind of how that would land basically with them on their platform. I mean, it's the kind of thing that, if I'm perfectly honest, can't you see LinkedIn wanting to buy? I can do. You'd think so. Like, if it gets rid of, like you said, if it gets rid of, like, if it just puts more regulation in place and then it gets rid of, like, fake profiles or, like you said, it might lead down to like you know cyber cyber crime or something like that further down the line like yeah surely you'd think they'd be like totally on board with it but then maybe you think they're not because obviously they've not thought of the product themselves like mm. although here's someone who undoubtedly is linkedin friendly mm. building something that you'd go well hang on a minute i mean you know he, he knows he knows linkedin and to go back to his point around the economy of ideas and the fact that you have to try and find an idea, you know, the, the advice that he has for entrepreneurs, don't get caught up in your idea, but look at whether there's an addressable market. Is it, is it a viable solution? Some issues are worth solving, but the solution isn't buildable. He knows this market inside out. As co-founder of LinkedIn, he knows what this addressable market is, and, and he's come up here with a viable solution that fixes a problem around whether or not you can trust who someone says they are, and then empowering the users via decentralization is a really interesting step and also it just speeds up from kind of every perspective doesn't it like it's not wasting anybody's time like it's not wasting our time as recruiters obviously it's not wasting an employer's time if they actually know that the people that are being put in front of them or people that they're speaking to are who they say they are basically and obviously they can do exactly what they've claimed to be able to do um so you think yeah i, I can't imagine why linkedin would be against it because yeah, like say, it's, it's just kind of cuts out a lot of time wasting on, you know, for lots of different people, basically. But also at the same time, like I, I'm just thinking I could change my job title to CEO, not one well, not CEO, because no one's going to believe that, but like senior manager of, I don't I, know. I believe it. Well, thank you. Uh, senior manager of Budweiser, for example. Yep. Right? That's topical. That's quite in, in the news. And I could go on an absolute Kanye West rant, right, on LinkedIn about 
Qatar, about the World Cup, about FIFA. I could probably get that trending if, you know, I got enough kind of eyes on that stuff, right? So for organizations, they probably want this as well because they wouldn't want just a numpty to set up an account and say, oh, I'm so-and-so. And then you kind of just, do you know what I mean? Like, because everyone loves a little screenshot and share these days, right? Mm -hmm. And then as soon as a screenshot and share happens, someone else posts it, you know, it starts a, a, a kind of, you know, trend. And then I, I think maybe also LinkedIn might, might be pushed by organizations to say, actually, we need to be a bit more sensitive. We need to do more. Um, I'm sure if there were certain messages that you wrote or certain statuses you want to put on LinkedIn, I'm sure they've got kind of, you know, the technology to kind of run them through some sort of algorithm or due diligence. But, you know, maybe this just stops people being imposters and, you know, trying to pretend they are someone who they're not. I'm sure companies be able to, like, used to be able to do that on LinkedIn, though, where I'm sure if you put a new job and said, like, if I change my, you know, I work, to, I work at Harvey Nash, obviously, for example, I'm sure Harvey Nash then have to, like, accept that, don't they? I'm sure that used to be a thing. I don't know if it's necessarily a thing anymore, but I'm sure that they had to, mm -hmm. like, accept someone saying that they worked at their organisation to stop, like, what you just mentioned there. Mm -hmm. But I could be wrong. I don't know. I'm sure it used to be a thing. Maybe, I don't know. Because I'm sure I could put, like, I work for someone else. It's a big, bold claim. It's, it's not worth the hassle, is it? I, th I think it might be risking your career. Yeah. Well, yeah, if you go on a big, on a Kanye West run, just to trial this for tech talk. Rant? Worth it, to be honest. Just a quick one, then, before we uh, before we move on. The, the fact that he talks a little bit about founder culture, there's been a lot in the news, obviously, with Twitter and Elon Musk and him letting so many people go and this idea that they needed to sleep under the desk and if they're not totally committed to the idea, they shouldn't be there. And yet here we've got someone who's incredibly successful saying that you're often thrust into being a leader and if you're tired and not able to think clearly, you do a disservice to everyone else. Um, your co-founding team, your, your, or your fellow leaders rather, your, your employees, your investors, and you know, he espouses the fact that you need to rest to be a good leader. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Kind of goes against the grain of, of, of the kind of the tech bro culture, right? Yeah, I know what you mean. I think sometimes if you're completely burnt out, it's like, oh, great, well, this person clearly is doing a great job and they're like putting in all the hours under the sun and they clearly care. But like you say, there's going to come a time where you do just completely like almost like kill yourself. Do you know what I mean? So you've got to take a step back and then you're almost like more productive for like taking that step back and... I don't know, just being a bit more like savvy or being, being more like smart with things rather than just like burning yourself into the ground. And then you're literally just no use to anybody. So yeah, I would agree with that statement. By the way, no, no, in no stretch am I um, thinking that tech bro culture is good. I was very much air quotes, not a good thing. But uh, to anyone listening thinking that I might be saying that that's a, that's a good aspect of the, of the industry. But, I, I, um, I to, be, to be honest, I think uh, uh, there is, a, there is a, an element of you know kind of if you are tired you might make the wrong decisions or you might make you know decisions that you think are impulse that might be the laziest option right um so i am from the the kind of way of thinking of you know you should have, be quite restful be quite zen energy should be flowing you know all that sort of stuff i don't know, I don't know why amber's looking at me and nodding like that but yeah because we say this but i don't think we've ever taken this advice between either of us at any point but yeah, I do, Dave, yeah, yeah you, you're in the presence of the hardest working people uh, 
Yeah, Harvey Nash. <laughs> the hardest working people at Harvey Nash. You've, <laughs> you've got a lot of claims on today's show. Mate, Not only could you sink a company by pretending to be its CEO. Yeah. I'm also the hardest working, you know, member of staff at Harvey Nash. And also, if anyone else disagrees with me, come and find me in the office and let's have a chat about it. He's sitting in one of the meeting rooms at the moment yeah. because he's so fun. But if anyone from my beef who listens to our show there also feels sorry for me, I'm more than happy to come and you know keep you uh, keep you company on a sun lounger and and whatnot because you know everyone, you you and Wayne, everyone, yeah, me, me, me and Wayne, yeah, 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 yeah. Coming up after the break, I've got Milan User. He's our second guest today. He's going to be talking all about operational maturity and how to achieve that within your organisations. So an interesting subject to stay tuned for. But Akish and Amber, you're leaving us at this point. Thank you very much, both of you, for your time. Uh, Hopefully, Akish, we get to see your AI portraits at some point in the next day or two. Hopefully, mate, yeah. I didn't pay my uh, $3 fine for it. Half a pint. It's not half a pint. Probably less. Hmm. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, if, as and when they come, mate, I will send them as promised last week. Send them over. We'll, we'll, I sent you videos. We'll get them of, on the tech talks. I sent you videos of uh, Wham and Mariah Carey songs in London, mate. So you did. Yeah, I will be passing them on. All right. And uh, yeah, Amber, why don't you why don't you check it out? Find a portrait. I can't look any worse than those wrinkles on you, Dave. Ooh, in the yeah, nice, nicest way possible. No, the other two, <laughs> they did a great job. But those wrinkles, I don't want them to put any wrinkles on my face. Dave, to be fair, mate, in, let's in go to the them, advert break. In, in one of them, you look fit. But, Cheers, yeah. mate. Let's go to the advert break. <laughs> Here at Tech Talks, we're very lucky to have a lot of content. And sometimes we're not entirely sure what to do with it. For example, when we go to a conference, we will quite regularly meet 15 or 20 people and not know how to get them all on the show. So we've created something new, Tech Talks Extra, for those snippets from conference floors or from one-off events that we don't quite know how to fit into your regular Tuesday show. Tech Talks Extra is free. It's on a private RSS, so you do need to sign up for it and subscribe. But as I say, it's free and all you need to do is hand over your email address and in return, we'll give you instructions of how to access all of that additional content. To get instructions and to sign up to the show so you can play it on Apple and Google podcast players, all you need to do is go to www.nashsquared.com forward slash the hyphen hub forward slash tech hyphen talks hyphen extra hyphen sign up hyphen form. Alternatively, have a look at the link in the show notes. Probably a bit of an easier way to do it. Don't miss out on all the bonus content that we've got from the likes of Web Summit, Unleash World, or from any internal events that we're running. Welcome back to the second part of today's podcast, where I'm going to be interviewing Milan User. Milan is currently the Chief Information Officer at TUI, but he's worked at places like Barclaycard, BGL Group, Digitas, and Weave. Uh, And this interview is a dive into a series of articles that he's written focusing specifically on organizational material but if you go onto his linkedin and have a look there's also articles around what he thinks about productivity as well as uncertainty big topics facing so many leaders and organizations at the moment so hopefully some really practical steps here from his own insights around organizational maturity and how you can achieve it before i hit play 
quick reminder that you can sign up to Tech Talks Extra on Thursdays. Myself and Akish are going to be sitting down and reviewing some of the technology news each week. Something a little bit more offbeat and topical, but equally we'll be throwing in some more of those interviews that we recorded back at Web Summit. So plenty of reasons to have a look there. Um, That link is in the show notes. I'll hand over to the interview with Milan and have a great week. This morning, I'm talking to Milan user. Milan, um, currently at TUI, but previously BGL Group, been at Barclay Card previously, held a number of different senior roles within technology organizations. Thank you for taking the time to join us today. Well, thank you for having me. Um, and we bumped into each other at Web Summit in Lisbon, so it's nice to to then have the opportunity to welcome you onto the podcast. So, yes, thank you for, for freeing up half an hour of, of your day. Absolutely, and uh, what an interesting event, wasn't it? It it was. It always is. Um, but I think certainly, certainly after the um, pandemic, I, well, not after the pandemic. It's always weird. It's not. You don't know how exactly to phrase that. But with the ability for people to get back out there and meet people, there was obviously that surge uh, of wanting to do so. So that was. Fun. It was. Yeah, I agree. It was probably one of these the sort of strange experiences where you haven't been around so many people for such a long time that it sounded almost. I uh, felt almost surreal. But yeah, it was. It was good content, yeah. good, good materials, and lots, lots of food for thought. And look, you've written a series of articles that um, are on your LinkedIn, three in fact, mm-hmm. um, one about uncertainty and one about productivity, two topics that are tied very heavily, I suppose, to people's thinking when it comes to the pandemic and post-pandemic world. But then a third one that I thought would be really interesting to talk about, uh, especially given the the kind of environment at the moment, and that's around organisational maturity. Um. So what I thought we would do is ask, first of all, the very basic question of what maturity is, in your opinion. Yes, and it's one of those things that, you know, it depends who you ask. You'd ask 10 people and you get probably 12 opinions. Um, So maturity for me really has many different flavors. But if I were to kind of distill it really to the the bare bones, to to the sort of most meta definition that I think applies very broadly, then I would say that organizational maturity is basically a measure of the organization's ability to attain some kind of complex objectives in optimal way, right? So mm-hmm. how good are we in getting things done in a way that works meaningfully in the short term and in the long term? Really, that's it is for me in a nutshell. And I suppose the follow-up question to that then is, why should people care about this as a subject? Because that sounds like a fundamental thing that everyone would want to get right anyway. So why should we talk about maturity yeah and i think again this is one of those things that um you we should not get obsessed with maturity but for me maturity is an umbrella term or idea that really represents this notion of how do we first of all know how well we are doing uh, how how good are we as an organization and in succeeding and how do we compare ourselves in some meaningful way to um, either others in the industry or or anyone who really uh, we think are doing well but also how do we know that we are getting better right in, in what way do we feel that the investments that we're making in continuous improvement be it technical process people structure whatever actually is delivering the benefit or the value that we are hoping to get out of it so this idea of maturity, for me, um, whilst it has many different dimensions, is really there to kind of help us steer our both our investments and our focus, but also help us see whether we are uh, succeeding in making things better in the way that actually is meaningful. Now, I looked at your article and it talks a little bit about some of the consequences and um, 
the ways that we might achieve some of those those goals optimally. And I think it's quite interesting because if I think about NASQUARE's Digital Leadership Report and the trends around budget at the moment, there might appear to be some slight conflict between what we're writing about and which are really important issues versus possibly the economic reality that leaders yeah. are facing and organizations are facing. So you talk in your article about developing services and products that solve real world problems and or create new markets and opportunities. And yet it would appear to be at the moment that technology leaders are not retreating, but are focusing on infrastructure, are focusing on operational um, headaches rather than necessarily innovation or creating new opportunities. So how do you think that tallies in the current market? I mean, this is such a difficult balance to maintain. And you're right uh, that sometimes we need to skew our our efforts into things that are perhaps more down to earth, get things done. Uh, it's important today. We can't wait till tomorrow. There are some certain practical and pragmatic things we uh, especially in difficult times, economically otherwise, uh, where we really need to just uh, roll off our, our sleeves and, and get on with things without really worrying too much about some of the long-term consequences. However, I would still say that the uh, any organization that wants to be around, not only for the next six months, but not for the next you know, two years, three years, five years, 10 years, needs to continue to challenge itself about balancing the investments into here and now, be it cost saving, be it uh, improvements in operational efficiency, et cetera, be it in you know, infrastructure optimization and so on, which ultimately could be mature, maturity as well, of course, and uh, sort of broader investments and focus on things that are uh, that it will see, the, it will grow the organization's ability to succeed in the long run as well. And we've all seen organizations that um, kind of systemically co continue to fail to invest in the medium and longer term. And as a result of it, they gradually ground to a halt. And a prime example of this is uh, this sort of imbalance or, or getting the balance wrong is when you start noticing sort of accumulation of technical debt of various times. And that takes sometimes months, sometimes years to really, really notice. But before you know it, you start bringing in hundreds and hundreds of people to effectively achieve on a minuscule amount of change. And that for me is a, a sign of an organization that somehow failed to balance the medium, the long-term and the short-term priorities right and failed to kind of uh, focus on the maturity growth uh, in a balanced manner. Out of interest, what, what's the challenge then for a new technology leader coming into an organization where there is a lot of, of debt and working through some of that? Because I suppose you're, you're tasked with making change you know, you're brought in to, to turn that organization around. And you just said there, you can you can bring hundreds of people in to, to create a very minimal impact. I mean, that, that must be a conundrum that's 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 challenging to work out how best then to approach that. Yeah, and again, if, if I had a perfect answer, I would write a book and, and become rich. <laughs> uh, so so managing and effectively dealing with a, a significant amount of deck debt of various kinds is a, is a challenging task. But I, and I will sort of answer your question, uh, hopefully in some useful useful way in a second. But I also want to emphasize that I, I picked on a tech debt as, as one typical thing that often becomes a big constraint on organizations' ability to actually get things done. But also there are, there's this notion of organizational debt or, or cultural debt, right? There are other types of debt or immaturity that could be as impactful, if not more impactful than a technical debt. But maybe we can come on those in a moment. So for me, the, the, the challenge with technical debt is always, always really starts with, do I actually know what 
what I'm dealing with at the moment? Do I have a feeling, some kind of preferably quantifiable way of understanding how much technical debt of various kinds I actually carry? Because in most, in my experience, in most cases, for most organizations, the answer is no, we don't know. We have sort of, we see the side effects of it. We see things breaking randomly. We see that things take unexpectedly long time. But actually, we don't have a good feeling for, is it um, is the technical debt a massive problem? We just don't, don't deal with it. Is it a minor issue we just cannot need to address at some point? Or is it something in between? So for me, it starts with a bit of this idea of empiricism. So how do I establish what is true? And how do I openly talk about it in the first place? Because with that understanding, and we can talk about some techniques, how one can do it, with that understanding, we can then be much more measured in our response. And the response for me, regardless of how big a debt one has, almost always starts with, let's just try to stop making things worse, right? So one thing is improving what we have, and that may take very long time and may require some drastic measures. But let's start with uh, stopping the leak, right? The leaky bucket needs to be patched first before we can start dealing with anything else. So when talking about technical debt specifically, I always start looking at, okay, to what degree do we continue to add to the technical debt today by actions we are taking? And why don't we start with that first so that the problem we already might have is not getting worse? And then we can start talking about the how do we actually address in what way the the technical debt has been mounting you know, over the years uh, that we might need to deal with in very different ways uh, going forward. Your article um, lists some potential barriers to maturity. Um Looking through subheadings, you talk about uh, too much or too little, the we will do later fallacy. You talk about uh, tools and frameworks over outcomes, uh, local optimizations. Um, I appreciate every organization is, is different, but you do operate in a world where you're, you're reasonably plugged into your peers. What stands out? I mean, I know you've listed four there, but what really stands out as the core challenge for an organization at the minute or the, the, the hurdle to helping them achieve maturity that you think most, and I know this is broad, but most need to pay attention to, to make sure that, that it doesn't stop them? Um, I would say, you know, if, if, if we take the, if we, if we assume that the organization has established some degree of decent understanding of the level of tech debt that it actually has, especially in the critical systems, and that's no small feat. I want to emphasize that that could be the biggest challenge to start with, both technically, uh, but also emotionally, right? people are very attached to technologies that have been built or solutions that they have been using. So it's very difficult to tell someone that their baby is ugly, right? Um, but let's assume that there is some kind of decent understanding. And then now is the question, okay, we have this issue. We see that it's hurting us in various places to varying degrees. Now what? What do we do about it? Um, and out of the sort of four anti-patterns that I talk about in the article, you know, it's it's but broadly even split, but I would say more often than not, uh, I observe the sort of we will do it later fallacy. It's this: we recognize that we have a problem. We recognize that the tech debt is actually very painful, but you know what? Um, and we know we need to fix it, and we understand that it's urgent. However, can we just wait until the next suitable point in time that and often is linked to some kind of other milestone? Now, we look at a big project that we run or some kind of product we are looking to launch, and we would sort of talk ourselves into this idea of, you know what, let's just continue to cut corners until this thing goes live. 
because then we will, we can breathe a little bit more. We can afford to divert attention and focus and money into addressing our technical debt in various ways, and then things will get better. But here's the catch. There's never a point where you have nothing to do. There's always the next project to start. There's always a next product to launch. But there's always also in large complex programs, the next milestone that you were just hoping to hit and it slipped. And through this sort of perpetual uh, question of uh, we will do it later when we feel there's better, more time or more, we have more capacity, you very easily can find yourself in a situation that you've been going through this circle for two, three, four, five years. So you know that you have a problem, you know how to fix it, you want to fix it, but you never get to actually fixing it. So I call it fallacy because more often than not, you actually never uh, take the action that you intend to take. And therefore, uh, you end up almost knowingly sort of falling into the trap of, of technical debt being a major impediment to your organization's capability. Now, your, your article goes on to list uh, some steps, some practical steps to helping to achieve maturity. Uh, and the fourth of those is is make it happen, which talks about the fact that, yeah, execution really matters, but you need to establish the environment within which this can all take place. And and I think that cultural piece is really interesting, especially given the, the change of circumstances, you know, that many organizations find themselves facing, that changing kind of employee-employer relationship. Uh, one of those points is changing what and how we celebrate and recognize. It talks about changing existing and developing new initiatives uh, or incentives rather for teams, peoples and leaders. How have you tackled those challenges over the last couple of years to make sure that, that the make it happen piece is a reality? Yeah, I mean, when I was writing the, the, the post, I was thinking, you know, make it happen. That sounds like just get it done, right? How, how hard can it be? But of course, it's, it's exceptionally hard. Even if you know what you want to do it, or what you want to do, why, how, still the execution side of this is tremendously challenging. So for me, it's it, it, what's critical is to almost combine number of different lenses, number of different approaches at the same time to make um, sort of addressing of both technical debt and ultimately growing maturity, because we, we center this conversation on things like tech debt, but of course, you can apply this logic to many other elements of maturity. And it's really the, the, the only the combination of these, of these factors, and I will go through some of those in a second, that um, actually make it possible to, to achieve the make it happen step in that, in that little sort of guide. So First and foremost, it is the sort of, okay, we recognize we have a problem and we understand and agree that we need to do something about it. Okay, great. Now, doing something about it means we need to create space for it to happen. Um, and that's, you can see, easier said than done, but just randomly saying, well, if you have a little bit of time, can you please refactor this part of the code or start sort of thinking differently about this platform? Usually people don't have time. So you have to create time. How do you create time? You create time by not doing something else, right? You start treating the work that needs to go into maturity in the same way as any other work you would do for customers and for, or for the business. And that, that's best done by really thinking about the address, addressing of technical debt in customer terms. We are doing this so that a customer or the business gets certain value. We should best articulate what that value is, how much faster certain things will become, how much risk we will remove, how much uh, lead time we think we can reduce, et cetera, et cetera. So that we are clear that when we are prioritizing you know, 20, 30, 50% of our time that goes to effectively growing maturity, we know that we're getting something in, in return. So make, creating a space is essential. 
Now, the other piece is the the recognition, right? So you can do all these things, but if all you recognize in front of colleagues, in terms of management and leadership, is just people who delivered new features or people who achieved great new capabilities, then it almost serves as a disincentive to people who are very passionate and work on making things better because they never get you know the spotlight. So what we've done is really we inverted things on its head and we first started in every you know all hands meeting in every you know, management conversation we would start first talk to talk about what have we made what have we made better what have we improved what uh, in which area we've grown our maturity and then we would talk about features. Then we would recognize people who have perhaps achieved something specific in terms of customer outcomes and so on. Really to almost like overemphasize the importance of uh, continuous growth in capability and maturity. And that what that does is it shows people that this is not some kind of secondary concern, but it is something that really matters both to management, to the business, and ultimately, of course, to, to colleagues and customers. And then, you know, with with that, we also need to, when we talk about celebrating uh, things and need to, uh, and talk about how we communicate about this, we also always want to make sure that uh, the amount of presence or the amount of um, uh, communication and visibility that a growth in maturity uh, receives is proportionate to uh, everything else that is happening in the business. So we basically try to elevate this work uh, on, on par with uh, everything that the business cares about, because ultimately growing maturity is a uh, it means achieving business outcomes better, safer, faster, hopefully in a more sustainable way. And that's a good thing for the business and good thing for customers. But Milan, it's, it's been great to spend some time with you and thank you for sharing some of your thoughts around this. If someone wants to read that article, it is on your LinkedIn. So Milan, user J-U-Z-A. But if you had one final thought to leave listeners with if, if they're thinking about this topic in conclusion, what would that one thought be? I would say shy away from making this too complex, too difficult, too sophisticated to start with. Don't fall for the trap of, of very complex maturity frameworks. Don't overthink it. First and foremost, establish uh, where you are. Create environment and space where you can actually have an honest conversation about how to grow maturity and then uh, execute in a sustainable manner continuously and effectively forever. Once you have that mindset shift, once you enable that kind of ethos to be established, everything else follows and the complex frameworks and sophisticated metrics can follow. Brilliant. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for having me and have a great day. Thank you.